0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television.
1: Good morning. Thank you so much for being with us today. My name is Laura Castaneda. Welcome to Mexico Moving Forward 2012. This is um, a day-long celebration put on by the Center for U.S. Mexican Studies and the School of International Relations and Pacific Studies, And we intend to have a lot of dialogue on Mexico's future today. So thank you for all of our guests, our speakers, our academics who came in to share a great conversation, and for those of you that are in the audience participating. Um, As I said, I I have been in San Diego for quite some time. I'm not a local from San Diego. But um, I chair the communications department at San Diego City College, and I've been a a journalist, a broadcast journalist, on both sides of the the border for quite some time. So it really gives me great pleasure to be here and to uh, hear some of the dialogue that's going to take place today. Um, America's Finest City is not known for sunshine in the month of May or June. We have something called May Gray and June Gloom, So if you're going to vacation and come back to San Diego, don't come in May or June, because you won't find the sunshine. But thank you so much for being here today. And uh, for opening remarks, I would like to introduce Alberto Diaz Calleros and Suresh Subramani, who are here up here at the front. And um, I would like to first ask uh, Alberto Diaz Calleros to come up. Uh, he is an associate professor at the School of International Relations and Pacific Studies and the director of the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies here at UC San Diego. Dr. Diaz-Gallero's book, Federalism, Fiscal Authority, and Centralization in Latin America, compares the evolution of Mexican fiscal centralization in the 20th century with Argentina, Brazil, and Venezuela. So, without further ado.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Eh, bienvenidos todos. Eh, eh, I'm very happy that we are here again for a second time in, in Mexico moving forward. Uh, when we conceived this event last year, uh, one of the important things that we, we discussed amongst us as we were trying to generate the, the whole idea was uh, the, the question of you know what, the, what is the spirit of, 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 the, of the meeting that we want to put together. And um, in some ways, the, the, the biggest challenge we faced, uh, we found ourselves in, was that um, everything from this side of the border uh, that had the mexico uh, in, in any phrase that had Mexico always had a negative connotation. It was about the problems of Mexico, the difficulties of violence, uh, the issue of the Mexican migrants. It, it was It was always couched in a very very negative tone and um, as we were thinking about this, we thought we really need to change the conversation we need to think about ways in which uh, you know, our, our academic scholarship, our scholarship, our academic uh, endeavors, have to be connected in some ways with the general sentiment, with the mood uh, that you see uh, in, in the U.S., in the San Diego region, in the California, uh, in the state of California. At the same time, one of the biggest challenges was we really wanted to make sure that we would not um, shy away from the real problems that the country is facing. So um, we, 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 we want to make it very clear uh, that, that we we are not in an exercise of denial. We we know uh, there are some very serious uh, issues uh, of of the way the country is, is is facing. You know, one of the most basic things that have to be provided to any citizen. You know, has say some you know general safety in your everyday life. Uh, the fact that we have this this challenge to the state uh, that we had not probably faced uh, in many many years, uh, many decades. Uh, and, and, and finally, the one which is, you know, the one that brings us together here today, that, that the Mexico's uh, economic performance has been quite disappointing. Uh, you know, in spite of doing a series of things which, you know, would, you would think are the right things to do and, and you know, arranging uh, a lot of, uh, you know, making very structural, very important structural reforms, uh, the Mexican economy uh, is, is puzzling. It is an economy that does not grow the way we, we would want it to grow. Um, so, so, we will have you know, this today a very, a very uh, particular group of people um, who I think uh, often in, in, in private they, they have often expressed um, with their friends, with their families a lot of their concerns and a lot of their thoughts about how to move the country forward, how to change the terms of the debate, how to change. the the, the issues, because from their realms, from their areas of of expertise, and particularly, I would say, from their areas of excellence, they're all remarkable men and women who are doing really, really special uh, work in, in, in in their particular areas of expertise. They have expressed to their friends and their families how they think or how they imagine a better future, a more prosperous Mexico, but often we don't get an opportunity to listen to them. Uh, a lot of the conversation is not dominated by some of the people that we have here today. And I really want to use this opportunity and the way the program is structured is to really have this opportunity to have a dialogue uh, about about these issues. So I really am looking forward to a very productive conversation. I want to uh, also say that this whole effort would not have been possible Without a set of, uh, of, of, of very generous sponsors, but particularly Sempra Energy, uh, which uh, is our presenting sponsor, as well as a whole host of, of, uh, of very generous people uh, and institutions that have helped us to be here today. So, thank you very much, welcome, and let's have a very productive day.
1: And Subrash Subramani, the Executive Vice Chancellor of UC San Diego, is Executive Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs and Professor of Molecular Biology at UC San Diego. He is world-renowned for his work in the field of organelle biogenesis and disassembly, for which he has won several awards, including the Sorrell Scholar Award, and NCI Research Center Development Award, and a Guggenheim Fellowship.
3: Thank you, Laura, and thank you, Alberto, for kicking this uh, wonderful meeting off. On behalf of UC San Diego and the administration here, I'd like to welcome all of you. Let me begin by thanking first the distinguished panelists who are going to be here, and also the sponsors and honored guests who are going to be participating in this event. Uh, This is special for us in in many ways, and, and this whole event started... Uh, as a celebration of our 50th anniversary, and then uh, it was such a success that we decided to make it a tradition. So this is the second meeting of of this kind, and I hope that uh, as it progresses that we'll have other opportunities to make this even more successful. Um, As Alberto said, I want to thank some of the collaborators who helped put this event together, the Mexican Consulate General in San Diego, the City of Tijuana, as well as the uh, Secretary of Tourism from Baja California. We've, as a campus, always enjoyed a special relationship uh, with Mexico, our our nearest neighbor, and this has been possible for the last three decades through our Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies, which has focused on a number of themes that I'd like to just remind the audience about. Many of you probably know this already. The first is to support multidisciplinary research on Mexico-U.S.-Mexican relations, and the Mexican origin populations in the United States as well as uh, uh, the the rest of the world. So we also sponsor, as as part of the center, comparative studies, uh, trying to build close collaborations with Mexican institutions, academic, as well as other uh, uh, non-academic institutions. And the goal, of course, is to disseminate these findings to inform the public and the scholarly debates uh, in both Mexico as well as the United States. So the, the center performs both an intellectual uh, exercise of, of working on topics of interest, but part of our goal is also to communicate that to the public so that it has what uh, a, a theme that I've been trying to encourage on the campus societal impact. Uh, the inaugural Mexico moving forward, as I said, started in 2011, and we hope to make this a tradition as we go along. Uh, when the center's director, um, Alberto diaz Carreras was trying to think about the theme for this, uh, uh, this year's symposium, he, had, he didn't have to go very far because it turned out that one of our own colleagues and one of his colleagues, Gordon Hansen, who's, who, who you'll hear from, um, uh, wrote this book uh, uh, and published a paper in uh, Journal of Economic Literature in 2010 saying, why isn't Mexico rich? And this is going to be the theme of uh, the symposium uh, this morning. And I hope that uh, you you learn uh, something new and interesting from the discussion. Professor Hansen's work has had an overarching theme of, of, of today's symposium of promoting development in Mexico by addressing the issues of regulation, human capital, uh, societal or uh, social protection, the economy as well as entrepreneurship, and so I think that this will be the theme of, of the symposium today uh, you 'll hear from an impre- impressive panel and they will address these issues, and I hope there'll be time for debate and, and discussion on this and I, We will close the day with a uh, reception that highlights the culture and food of Baja California. Um, Mexico is a critical partner for UC San Diego. We hope to look forward to uh, continuing interactions between the, the U.S. as well as Mexico and particularly the partnership that all of you facilitate for us at UC San Diego. So I hope you have a fruitful discussion during the rest of the day. Uh, I'm glad it's going to be on uh, UC TV, and please tell your friends about it because my schedule uh, after a little bit of time I will have to escape but I hope to catch it at least on UC TV. Thanks again.
1: Thank you both so much. So let me uh, go ahead and move into our first session, which is uh, called Institutions for Growth. And let's have Gordon Hansen, the Director of Center on Emerging and Pacific Economies at UC San Diego. Go ahead and come forward. As well as Santiago Levy, Vice President for Sectors and Knowledge for Inter-American Development Bank and I believe we are going to begin with Santiago Levy, who is the Vice President for Sectors and Knowledge at the Inter-American Development Bank and the main architect of Progresa Oportunidades in Mexico, which has become the model of anti-poverty programs worldwide. They will each be giving you a presentation, and then we'll open it up for questions and dialogue. So why don't we begin with Santiago?
4: So so good morning, And, and let me begin by thanking Alberto for his kind invitation, the, the Center for U.S.-Mexico Study and the University of um, California at San Diego. It's very, very pleasant to be here this morning, despite the May, what is it, the May Gray? Or, right. right, despite the May Gray. Um, so what I'd like to do is, is I want to make three points about Mexico moving forward. Um, the first point is to put a puzzle. The second point is to try to provide a partial answer to the puzzle. And then the third point is to offer a suggestion as to how Mexico could move forward in the context of, of sort of the general questions that Alberto put at the beginning of the morning. So the puzzle. Um, why hasn't Mexico done well? Uh, why hasn't Mexico, particularly since 1995, after the crisis and after we stabilized from '96 onwards, it's been almost 15 years now, a decade and a half, why is Mexico lagging behind the rest of the world? It is not a macroeconomic crisis. Mexico has been known for the last 15 years uh, by having very prudent macroeconomic management. So we've learned many, many lessons from that. So it's not that we've managed badly the economy. Perhaps in the past you could say, you know, all these crises and all these cycles and all these Mexicans always running budget deficits and all that. No. That's not the answer. It is not that we don't save enough or that we don't invest enough In fact, interesting piece of data, Uh, the investment rate in Mexico, the share of the total product that we actually devote to investment to make the economy grow, is about 26% of GDP. It's higher than the Latin American average, uh, and it's higher than many countries, including the United States. So it's not that we don't save a lot, and it's not that we don't invest a lot. And it's also not true that we don't work a lot. Actually, of all the 36 countries that are in the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, Uh, Mexico occupies the second place in terms of numbers of hours worked per person. So Mexicans work really hard. They work really hard. They save a lot. They invest a lot. And they manage their economy well. Traditional theory would say, you know, free trade and sound money, and that's all you need to keep economies growing, if you had read Adam Smith. We've had free trade since the NAFTA in 1996. We had sound money, we have very low inflation. But if you look at Mexico's growth rate, as Alberto was saying at the beginning, it's been very lackluster, it's poor, and compared to South America, compared to East Asia, compared to even other parts of the world, Africa, Mexico's lagging behind. So that's the puzzle. That's the first point I want to make. Why why is it? And if I were to put the answer in one single word, the word would be productivity. The reason Mexico's not growing as fast as it could potentially grow is for reasons that we don't really, really understand very well. We each have a little bit of the story, but we don't have the full story. Uh, productivity growth in Mexico is not doing well. Productivity growth is the difference between how much you work and you put capital to produce output and the rate of growth output. Societies that grow very fast is because productivity, the efficiency with which to produce things, grows very, very fast. And in societies that grow very slowly because productivity grows very slowly. Interesting piece of data. Income per capita in Mexico today, relative to income per capita in the United States, is less than 50 years ago. Pretty sad. However, the labor force in Mexico is much bigger relative to the United States today than it was 50 years ago. And the capital stock in Mexico is bigger today relative to the United States than it was 50 years ago. So we have more workers than relative to the Americans. We have more capital relative to the Americans. And our income per capita today, relative to the Americans, is less than it was 50 years ago. And it's not because we mismanaged the economy, because at least for a decade and a half we've managed the economy really well. So if Mexico is going to move forward, message one, if Mexico is going to move forward, it is only going to do so if whatever it does, it increases productivity growth. If we don't increase productivity growth in Mexico in the next few years, there's no chance that we're going to be able to catch up with East Asia, with other countries in South America, or with countries in the rest of the world that are growing much faster. Why isn't productivity growth much faster in Mexico? Many reasons. And economists are not good enough, or at least I'm not good enough, to disentangle whether it's education, the quality of education, or is this or that and the other. There are many reasons. I want to put on the table one that I've been working on for the last five years, because the more I think about it, the more I think it's the elephant in the room. So there were some slides that I want to share with you. Can can the slides be put on? Yeah, thank you. All right. I promise I'm not going to be very technical, but this is important. The census data is the data of all firms in Mexico. This is data for 2008. So in Mexico, there were... 3.7 million firms in Mexico in 2008. And of those, in red, are the firms that had 0 to 5 workers. In green, those that had 6 to 10 workers. In blue, 11 to 50. And in yellow, firms that have 51 workers or more. There were 3.7 million firms, of which 3.3 million had 3 or 4 workers, less than 5. So it's a huge number of firms. In fact, really interesting point. Only 1% of all firms in Mexico, only 1%, have more than 50 workers. Another really interesting fact, these are the number of firms in the census. But firms registered, formal firms, firms that are registered with the tax authorities and firms that are registered with social security authorities, are these firms here. 800,000 firms of which these had 1 to 5 workers, these had 6 to 10, and all that. The little circles are drawn to proportion. And the first message is a very important message. More than half of all firms in Mexico, in fact, almost two-thirds of all firms in Mexico, are informal. These are called the changarros. Okay, How much labor training occurs in a changarro? How much technology adoption occurs in a changarro? How much innovation? How much new processes? How many of this stuff goes on in these little firms? Most of which, as I'm trying to show here, are actually illegal firms because they're not registered with the authorities, they're not paying taxes, they're not paying social security contributions. They're they're very, very, very small. So informality is big in Mexico. In fact, about two-thirds of all firms, I repeat, are in the informal sector. the census doesn't really tell the whole story. Despite the fact that the census is called census, it's not a census. The census only captures economic activity in Mexico in what the Institute of Statistics call a fixed establishment. It has to have a roof, a wall, and it has to have machinery so that it holds economic activity. Anybody who's doing economic activity in the streets, and if you go to Mexico City, you see a lot of people selling you juice in the corner here, a newspaper over there, shining your boots in this little corner there, or selling you whatever at the red light, all that economic activity is not captured in the census. So this little circle here is the actual labor force in Mexico, all Mexicans who work. In blue are all the workers in Mexico that are captured by the census. And what's amazing is that more than half of the workers in Mexico are not even in the census. They're not in the census because they're working out somewhere. These are the public sector workers. These are workers in agriculture. These are workers in urban areas, in firms captured by the census. And these guys over here are workers in the urban areas in Mexico that are actually working in the street. Self-employed. Or an establishment of two to three people selling you juice. You've seen them, Right? There's one guy there who squeezes the orange juice. Another guy behind there who's washing the glass with the orange juice. And a third guy who's collecting the money. And it's a little firm. It's a firm. There's capital. It you know steals electricity from the electricity rod. There are three guys there. There's labor. They produce output. Sadly, this is a huge chunk of the labor force in Mexico. But even the ones that are in firms... I distinguish here between the ones that are legally registered, working in the legal economy, formal, and the ones that are not. And if you see, in one to five firms, the vast majority of workers are actually not even registered. So when you think about Mexico, when people talk about the banks and they talk about the financial sector and they talk about the firms and they talk about all that, this is the Mexico that they're talking about. Including public sector workers, this is the Mexico that they're talking about. the vast majority of Mexican workers either work on their own or work in a firm of two or three people, and they're informal. This is not the full explanation for why productivity in Mexico is stagnating and they're sort of cause and effect, and it's difficult to distinguish cause from effect, and these things feed back on each other. But certainly the point that I want to make here is that a big chunk of the explanation of why productivity growth in Mexico has been stalling has been we have a very, very large informal sector. And I'll show you one last graph in a minute that says that, in fact, that informal sector is growing despite NAFTA, despite macroeconomic stability, and despite having you know, sound, uh, sound money and free trade. This next slide is interesting because it sort of tells a story of what I think is going on in Mexico, and if we want to move forward to what we have to escape from. You have to ask yourself the question, why are so many people informal? Why are so many firms informal? And the answer is, because it's probably in their best interest. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. There was this famous uh, guy who stole money from banks many, many years ago in the United States. I forgot the name of, the, of the, the thief. I think it was called Jesse something. And they said, why do you always steal from the banks? And he would say, well, that's where the money is. So why are there so many people in the informal sector, firms and workers? Because it pays from a private point of view to be in the informal sector. And in fact, what has happened in Mexico over the last decade and a half is that the government is subsidizing the informal sector ever more. Because think from a social perspective, from a social point of view, what does it really mean to have a very large informal sector? It means having more than two-thirds of your workers not having coverage of health insurance. Having more than two-thirds of your worker with access to a pension or to a housing subsidy, or to a daycare subsidy, or to any sort of benefit. And what the government has created in Mexico over the last decade and a half, started many, many years ago, but in fact since the administration of President Cedillo, then with President Fox, then with President Calderon, has been a vast social network of benefits that are given to the informal sector, actually for free. So this is the message that the Mexican government tells a firm. If you hire a worker formally, you and the worker must pay for his pension and for his health insurance. But you, firm, if you hire the worker illegally, we'll give him health insurance for free. And eventually, when he gets old, we'll give him a pension. But of course, if we catch you doing an illegal act, we'll fine you. So the best thing you can do is be a five-worker firm, because otherwise we're going to catch you and fine you. And that's exactly a little bit what's going on. My hypothesis about Mexico is that we tax the formal sector, very high taxes on the formal sector, both income taxes and labor taxes and all sorts of taxes. There's a large informal sector with very bad jobs. People switch from one job to the other. They move around. They shift around. And I show you the proportions. I'm not talking about something small. I'm talking about the majority of workers. The government responds to that because it says all these people need to be supported and they provide them ever more benefits. But, of course, the more we subsidize the informal sector, the bigger the informal sector gets. And we have to pay for that, so we have to put more taxes on the formal sector or use the oil rents for Pemex to sustain all this. Don't ask what happens when the price of oil goes down. And then, of course, that reduces productivity, causes more evasion, more bad jobs, and all that. So my view of what's happening a little bit is that we're facing a deep dilemma that we need to solve if we want to move Mexico forward. From the perspective of growth, you would like to say stop subsidizing the informal sector, get the firms to be legal, get the firms to train their workers, to innovate, to do new processes, to get going whatever you need to get going to get productivity growth going. You need to do that, and you need to widen the tax base because we all know that Mexico's tax base is extremely narrow compared to most countries in the world. But from another perspective, people are saying, look, there are all these people that are poor. There are all these people that are informal. We need to give them housing. We need to give them daycare. We need to give them health programs. We need to give them pensions. We need to give them all sorts of benefits. And these two things are fighting against each other. And these things have been fighting against each other for some time. One last slide, and I'll stop here. This is the same stuff that I showed you before from the 2008 census. What has happened to firms. This is the same comparison using the 2003 census. This is the same comparison using the 1998 census. So this is what has happened to the growth of formal firms in Mexico. This is what has happened to the growth of informal firms in Mexico. And just check what happened over the last 10 years. Mexico went from 2.8 million firms to 3.7 million firms, roughly 800,000 new firms. But most of them, small and most of them, illegal. There were 680,000 registered firms, 800,000 registered firms, so 900 new firms, only 100,000 firms, legal firms. This is going on. No country will move forward if it has a situation in which productivity is stagnating and is stagnating because they have a huge informal sector. So let me close by suggesting a way forward, a way to get out of this. And this is relevant because I think the, con- the country faces an opportunity that we can certainly not, not waste. When things are so bad, economists would say, when the equilibrium is so inefficient, there's always possibility of constructing a win-win solution to moving to an equilibrium, to a situation that is better from everybody. I think Mexico is so bad, the equilibrium is so inefficient, that in fact we have faced an enormous opportunity to actually move forward And I think this opportunity has to recognize that we have to reconcile these two objectives of productivity growth and social welfare in a different way than we're doing it today. We Mexicans aspire to a much more equitable society, and we surely deserve it. But we cannot construct an equitable society on Pemex rents and on illegality and low productivity, because eventually we will never be prosperous. We've got to reconcile the equity objective with the productivity objective. And what we need to do is we need a new social pact altogether. We need a major redesign, not small tinkering with the edges, a major redesign of the social pact in Mexico that offers all Mexicans a bundle of benefits that we can all agree whatever they want, health insurance, pensions, disability, daycare, housing. We've got to fund that properly, not with Pemex oil rents, and not with taxes on a subset of people in the informal sector, but with a proper tax reform. And we've got to unleash productivity growth by taking away from firms and from workers in the formal sector the huge burdens that they're paying today in terms of taxation for labor and interstation for firms. If you unleash firms in Mexico, if you take away the huge amount of burden that they pay on taxes, there's no reason why productivity growth in Mexico could not grow by 3 4 percentage more, at least in the initial years. And that would make a huge difference. Mexicans are used to say, Poor Mexico, so far away from God, so close to the United States. I think that's wrong. We can say, we might be far away from God, but why are we lucky so close to American universities? With so much knowledge within a half an hour flight, why is it that there's no much innovation, and why is it that a lot of the talent is moving here and not staying there to construct a prosperous country? And the reason is the incentives are wrong. And unless we change the incentives drastically, deeply from the bottom, we'll sit here next year and the year after that and the year after that asking why Mexico is not moving forward. I stop here. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And to continue our discussion on growth, Gordon Hansen, professor of economics and director of the Center on Emerging and Pacific Economies at UC San Diego. And speaking about his book, which was mentioned earlier, Why Isn't Mexico Rich?
5: So uh, usually when you... uh you write your uh, research, you do your own embellishment. But what was a short article has now been turned into a book. I think by the end of the conference, it might be a three-volume series with a six-CD uh, set. Um, uh, I want to thank Alberto for inviting me to be part of this event uh, and say how honored I am uh, to, to share the experience with so many distinguished uh, panelists. Um, the collective experiences of, of the folks who are part of this enterprise is, is really impressive. You have people who have gone out and done real stuff. And for an academic who spends his time creating ideas, people who make real stuff and create real organizations, it's, it's very impressive. Um, be it houses, be it tortillas, be it connections between people, be it new ways of providing credit uh, to um, Uh, to to small entrepreneurs uh, uh, in Mexico. The collection of people we have today is really uh, a testimony to uh, the greatness that that not just Mexico has, but that uh, that humanity has. So what I'd uh, like to do today is uh, talk about Mexico's uh, 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 experience in terms of of economic growth uh, in context. And the, the approach I'm taking is to set this up as a little bit of a competition. Think of this as the preview of the next World Cup final. Um, where we have Mexico uh, against Brazil. Um, and I think it's, it's fair to say, if we look at, at uh, global perceptions right now, that there's something of a love fest for Brazil. With its abundance of natural resources, Brazil is seen as the country of the future. And there is a fair bit of pessimism about Mexico, dragged down by drug violence, uh, tied to the sluggish U.S. economy, which has had a tough five years and will probably have another uh, tough uh, five years. So what I'd like to argue today is that, uh, that Mexico has, um, has received a bit of a bad rap. Uh, the world's been a bit too pessimistic about Mexico uh, and a bit too easy uh, on Brazil and give a sense of what might be some, uh, some paths for progress for Mexico coming out of this, um, uh, this experience. So... What we see in the two countries is both have actually taken uh, very similar approaches, uh, and at least in their initial phases of policy design over the last couple of decades, have followed the Washington uh, prescription very closely. And that means deregulating and privatizing industry, liberalizing trade, uh, as Santiago mentioned, creating sound uh, monetary and and fiscal policies, uh, creating successful anti-poverty programs, um, and also surviving uh, tough domestic uh, financial crises in Mexico in 1994 and 1995, Brazil in 1998, and then coming through the most recent global financial crisis, uh, OK. But uh, it's Brazil um, that gets all the love. So it's a member of the BRICS. We had the mania over Lula uh, for much of the last decade, and it's seen as uh, the new diplomatic power in Latin America. Um, so uh, one ironic thing about this is that part of uh, Brazil's success is just to copy what Mexico has done a few years later. And perhaps the the best example of this is the methods that Brazil has chosen to fight poverty. So what Brazil did was to develop the Bolsa Familiar which copied, quite literally, the program that, that Santiago was, was instrumental um, in, in designing in Mexico's case. So con- get conditional cash transfer programs where you provide poor families with incentives to keep their kids in school, to keep their kids uh, healthy, um, and, and what we've seen as a consequence of this are dramatic reductions in, in poverty. First in Mexico, beginning in the late 1990s when the program is implemented, and then following in Brazil after its implementation of the same program. So uh, uh, in light of the fact that there are strong similarities between the two countries, I'd like to step back and and think for a second, well, how should we benchmark uh, Mexico's uh, performance? So first, let's let's just look at what the facts say about the most obvious measure of performance, and that's uh, average income. So here I'm showing you per capita GDP in Mexico – uh, adjusted for purchasing power parity. So that puts all countries on a level playing field in terms of their cost of living. And here are the figures that Santiago uh, alluded to. You go back to 1990, Mexico's average income was a little under $10,000. Uh, in 2010, it was a little over $12,000. And that amounts to an average annual growth rate of 1.1%. At that rate, Mexico will double its income in 65 years. Okay, so if you think about lifting yourself out of poverty, that's a slow rate of, uh, of growth. So I want to think about uh, two comparisons. Um, so the first is with Korea. Now, this might seem a little unfair, right? So it's like if you're a middling soccer player and people decide to compare you to Lionel Messi. right? Nobody is going to look good next to, to Messi. Um, but I choose Korea for a particular reason. Uh, and that is um, because in, in a moment, I want to talk about what are some of the things that Korea has done right, and what can Mexico learn from that in terms of thinking about the policy choices that the country faces in, uh, in the next few years. So if we go back to 1990, uh, uh, Korea was just slightly richer than Mexico in terms of its average income. And if you go back to the mid-'80s, Mexico was actually richer uh, than Korea. What did Korea do over the last 20, uh, uh, last 20 years? It had an average annual growth rate of four point three percent at that rate. You double your income every 17 years. Okay, So poverty today in Korea is just is just not an issue. So this this comparison is tough on Mexico. But now think about the comparison of Mexico uh, to Brazil. Brazil, the country that's had this global commodity boom uh, that's sort of emblematic of new emerging economies. Here, Mexico doesn't look so bad. Brazil has done better. Its average annual growth rate over this period is 1.7%. At that rate, you double your income every 42 years. Okay? That's not Korea, but it's better than, uh, than every 65 years. Still, for a country that's benefited from this massive increase in demand for the stuff it produces coming from China and India and other emerging economies, if I were a Brazilian policymaker, I would have said, you know, we should have hoped for, uh, uh, for more. I want to think about that for a bit and think about what has Mexico lived through in the past two decades in terms of helping us understand this growth experience uh, that it's had. So let's do just a little bit of economic history and, and Santiago set this up very well for talking about uh, Mexico's experience around NAFTA and the, the, the policy choices that it, that it made. So after the 1994, 1995 uh, uh, peso crisis in Mexico, what happened was the emergence of an economic strategy that really put export growth at the center of the economy. So if you go back to the early 1990s, trade was around 18% of Mexico's GDP. Following the, the uh, severe depreciation of the, of the peso and the change in, uh, in and the implementation of NAFTA, what happens, trade almost doubles in importance goes to about 30% of GDP. Not Korean levels, um, but substantially higher than what we see in Brazil. Brazil remains a, an economy that's pretty insulated from the rest of the world. Trade is only about 10% of GDP in Brazil. So that's, that's one-third of the level of it is uh, uh, in Mexico. So this one thing Mexico has done very aggressively. It's put itself out on the world stage and said, we're going to make exports the center of, uh, uh, of what we do. Now, not just uh, exports, but manufacturing exports. So you go back to the 1970s, what was Mexico's future going to be? It was going to be oil. The 1990s changed that. So in the the, uh, beginning of the 1990s, manufacturing was only one-third of Mexico's exports. Oil was still important. But with the stagnation in oil production in Mexico and the change in in exchange rates and the uh, the opening of NAFTA and and other trade reforms, what this brought was a very strong specialization of Mexico in export manufacturing, such that by the late 1990s, manufacturing was 75, close to 75 percent of Mexico's exports. Okay, So in the late 1990s, this looked okay. Uh, It had helped Mexico achieve a dramatic recovery from the uh, from the peso crisis. And even with uh, the problems of low productivity growth associated with informality, you know, 1998, 1999, you would have said, uh, you know, Mexico's on a a path for serious recovery. Then what happened? Mexico had some extraordinarily bad luck that came in the form of China's emergence as a global powerhouse. Okay, so the timing of Mexico's emergence was just before China's emergence. Uh, and, I, and I don't think you can understate this point. You go back to 1995. And so here we're about 10 years into the process of, of reform and opening uh, in China. And China was still finding its way. I think if there's a wonderful new biography by Ezra Vogel uh, of Deng Xiaoping, which talks about the process of economic reform in China during the 1980s. It wasn't at all clear by the late 1980s, which direction China was gonna head. Uh, The hardliners were pushing for more state control. The Tiananmen Square events brought uh, conservative elements very much back uh, into power. And it wasn't until the early 1990s, when Deng Xiaoping had the brilliant insight to go on vacation, and take a tour of the parts of China that had been most aggressive in experimenting and reform, that China fully embraced foreign trade and foreign investment as its path for economic prosperity. Now, the timing there for Mexico was tough, because what, hap- what did China do? It unleashed its capability for, for growth that was a byproduct of the fact that the Mao era policies had kept China uh, severely below its long run potential. So here's a country with a strong, latent comparative advantage in manufacturing, and it finally gets itself together to unleash that potential. And when does that happen? Right when Mexico's kinda getting its act together uh, on the the export manufacturing front. So China goes from accounting for 3% of global manufacturing exports in 1995 to 14% of global manufacturing exports uh, in 2010 and it's really a phenomenal uh, chain of events. So that's the context in which we, uh, in which we have to understand that 1.1% growth uh, in Mexico, in, inclusive of uh, uh, the, the set of policies associated with distortions that keep Mexican firms too small and its workers too uh, informal. It's faced a very tough global economic environment. How is it done? Well, it managed some growth during that period. And as you look forward, what do you see? Well, the China threat is starting to subside. We've gone through the period of China's emergence, rising wages, moving into more high technology goods, and an increasing orientation towards the domestic economy creates some space for Mexico uh, to reemerge as a center for, for global manufacturing. But for Mexico to take advantage of those opportunities, it's got to do some things to help itself and Santiago has, has quite lucidly uh, discussed what needs to happen in terms of, uh, of social policies. So I'd like to talk about uh, very briefly a couple of other dimensions, and here we're gonna come back to the comparison with Korea. So to summarize, you know, Mexico's had the bad luck to produce what China also produces, and that means for Mexico, China's a rival. Brazil's had the extraordinary good luck to produce what China buys, which makes China uh, an ally. In that light, The differential performance of the two countries uh, actually makes Mexico uh, uh, look pretty good. So what does East Asia's experience tell us about what countries need to succeed in global manufacturing? It's a long list. I want to focus on just three elements uh, that I think are quite important for thinking about the next generation of policy reforms uh, in Mexico. One is access to finance. You want those small firms to grow into medium-sized and large firms. What we need is to channel finance to uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, And here is where Mexico really stands out. If you look at the credit that is channeled to the private sector as a share of GDP in Mexico, Mexico comes in about last place among middle-income countries. Substantially worse uh, than Korea, and even uh, significantly worse than uh, than Brazil. So the, the, the theme of social entrepreneurship and what... Uh, and what organizations in Mexico are doing, uh, like Banco Compartamos, in order to channel resources to the private sector, is a fundamentally important part of, uh, of Mexico's opportunities to uh, improve its performance. Second, what has, uh, what has East Asia done well? It's embraced digital technology. Okay? It has made access to, to cell phones and broadband internet a fundamental part of their economic strategy. Here again, Mexico lacks um, so, uh, to look at uh, uh, cell phone use in, uh, in in Korea today, what you have is basically uh, one cell phone prescription per per individual uh, in Korea. A rate it received uh, it achieved um, in the mid two thousands. Mexico is coming along on this front, but for a country at its income level, it's been a slow adopter, uh, and this is something that many feel hold countries back when it comes to. Uh, manufacturing performance. But where Mexico really uh, singles itself out is in terms of broadband internet uh, penetration. Um, What we have in in Korea is 35 broadband uh, internet users per 100 people. What we have in Mexico is 10. Okay, So um, here is perhaps part of Telmex's uh, legacy and the choices that that Mexico has made, restraining the capacity of digital technology to unleash Mexico's um, uh, competitive uh, potential. Final issue we turn to, as always, is, um, uh, is education. What's happened in Mexico? Pro- steady progress. So what we see is average education levels among the, the working age population rising steadily over time in Mexico from a little over six years, so a primary education in 1990, to around nine years uh, today. So that's, um, that, that's significant progress. And so you uh, now it, it lags behind Korea, but everybody lags behind Korea uh, on this dimension. But you look at this and you say, well, that manufacturing capacity, Mexico now has a trained enough uh, uh, and educated enough labor force to really do something with. With that level of education, you shouldn't be uh, have a, uh, uh, an industrial stock that's predominated by firms with two or three workers. So the potential uh, uh, is really there. So I think now we're, we're left with the situation where Mexico has survived an, an incredibly different uh, difficult period. And it's, it's survived it. It hasn't come shining through, um, but it's done pretty well when you certainly benchmark it to a country, country like Brazil, which in that period, I, I, would, I would say, should have done substantially better. It should have had a lot more money in the bank at, at the end of that period. Um, And what Mexico has done, something that Santiago alluded to, it's in effect, let a lot of money sitting on the table. So we have changes that can be made in the way financial markets work, in the way that social policy is governed, uh, in the way that technology is regulated. Uh, Easy changes, well, not easy to do, but easy to generate productivity growth from that Mexico has yet to enact. So It has a lot of arrows in its quiver um, that it is set to use. And so here we come with the challenge. We have, we'll have a new presidential administration uh, by this summer. Will we have the political cooperation or the political will to enact these changes? Um, or will it fall on civil society? So the good news here is that there are lots of options um, that Mexico has uh, to push itself uh, forward. Thank you very much.
1: We have our first e-question that has come in um, from Marco who doesn't tell us where he's tuning in or, or what his affiliation is. Unfortunately, in the discussion the political economy is missing. Is it really a matter of will? How are we going to create a better business environment? So I don't know if Gordon I... Gordon, I- won- Gordon knows the answer to that. <laughs> <too>. <laughs> <laughs>
5: uh, <laughs> um... So you have, uh, uh, Mexico has this predic- uh, predicament in which you have a collection of interests who benefit from the set of distortions that exist in the economy today that prevent the country from uh, unleashing its potential. And you can, it's easy to identify uh, culprits. You can identify the, what the teachers' unions have done. You can identify what uh, certain telecommunications companies have done. You can identify what certain uh, uh, big banks have done. Um, uh, In the end, uh, the the pressure for change rarely comes from the interests that are being served by the current system. Uh, It comes from the population as a whole. It comes from civil society. And occasionally, it comes from uh, the rare visionary leader who who you uh, have the the good fortune of uh, uh, of showing up. So uh, the the change will come when, when, the civil society in Mexico is able to articulate its demands in a way that, that, that pressure the political system uh, to make changes. A lot of political scientists look at the configuration in Mexico between those three parties and say, they don't, it shouldn't look like this in 25 years. It's not a, it's not a stable outcome. Uh, now, how long will it take us to get that reconfiguration? Um, uh, we don't know yet. It may take uh, the, the, the second coming of the PRI um, and whatever happens. Uh, for us to, uh, to figure out what the, the, the long-term political alignment will look like.
1: Do you wanted to add something? Yeah.
5: I think the, the question is very pertinent, mm-hmm. um, very difficult.
4: I would say this. I don't think Mexico's current equilibrium is, is, is bad. What I would say is it's sad. Um, if you have an economy that grows at 3.5% a year, and that takes 2% of GDP in oil rents, it's sufficiently good to keep a situation stable. It's sad because it could be so much better. What is the incentive to change from that equilibrium? Um, There's not a strong one. It's not a strong one because it is not like people are suffering tremendously. In fact, poverty has been coming down. It is not that benefits are not being delivered. They are being delivered at increasing rates with clientelism and distortions and whatnot, but they're there. And large businesses see an economy of 40 million consumers where 110 million people, so they see the three or four deaths the top of the distribution, which is a you know, good-sized country of 30, 40 million people, in which you know, they can serve that market, and there's opportunities. So, so this equilibrium can be very persistent. It's just it's very sad. Um, because if you changed it, you could have an economy that could look like Korea. Because if you really ask yourself the question, what is the substantive reason why Mexico cannot have income per capita growth of about 4%? And the answer is there's really no good reason except the very difficult question, which is the political economy that impedes that from happening.
1: Again, a topic that we could go on for a long time, but that's not not what we're... Exactly here to discuss. today. <laughs> uh, there was one more question. I think we have time for one more question. Right here.
0: Arturo Martinez-Caseres, I teach, and uh, it is always enlightening to hear Santiago Levy. Uh, thank you for use this university, UCSD. My, um, my question is in regards of the 26% of savings, GDP, and the way to um, equalize it, investment. My concern is that the price of uh, equalizing the economy from the big crisis of uh, 95, 94, 95, it was tremendous. So people or firms are not in the informality market because of their own choice. They are there because that's the only alternative. And that is a big question. I think that there is a mismanagement in the government in economic policy, in social policy, and in political and political policy. And there is what I think we have to work in an enormous and important social pact. I do agree in that. But things as they are happening today have proven that any subsidy can be increased, but poverty levels in real terms do not um, enrich people. They do not solve problems of misery and poverty. So I think that there is an important thing to do with the government, with institutions that we have and that we have to redefine in that sense. On the other hand, just a comment about uh, Gordon's um, good wish about uh, Mexico-Brazil final um, Soccer, um, controversial uh, or conflict uh, uh, solution. I think, of course, that Mexico will win if we do not get to the penalties. <laughs> and that is what we have to solve.
1: <laughs> I think you were making a little bit more of a statement than a direct question, but I don't know if either of you would like to follow up. Yes. Uh, 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 it- I'm sorry.
0: The question is about the importance of the social pact. I think that we do not deserve to undermine the responsibility of the government, This, especially due to uh, pan-governments that have been
4: terrible in many aspects. So, I I agree partly with, with your statement. I think macroeconomic management in Mexico and you've got to take the square root of my opinion because I was partly involved at some point in that, Um, I think on the whole has been fairly competent. And the administration of President Calderón, I think, has been very responsible and very competent in the management of macroeconomic policy, both the Ministry of Finance and the Central Bank. And I think the same was true for the administration of President Fox and and before that. The problems with Mexico are not with the macroeconomic management of the country. Um, I fully agree, however, in the other part of your statement, which is, we need a new social pact. We need a new social pact, but it cannot be a self-standing social pact. If it's going to be a little bit more than rhetoric and poetry, it's going to be a new fiscal pact. It's going to be a new fiscal pact in which we do raise the tax revenue, and then we turn around and we spend the tax revenue in a more intelligent way than we're doing it today, rather than distorting everybody's incentives the way we're doing it now, by cleaning up incentives and giving firms a much better space for them to grow, but at the same time extending to all workers. So I've made a proposal to have a fiscal reform to provide everybody with the same social benefits, to have universal social benefits, but sustain that in a fiscal reform that is equitable, that is fair, but does not depend on PEMEX, and do we not construct a prosperity on the back of a single oil enterprise. We have to pay taxes if we want a prosperous country. And we need a fiscal pact. And on the side of that, a social pact. And on that score, I would agree.
1: Professor, did you want to add anything to
5: that? Uh, so to end on a note of, uh, of optimism, uh, Mexico faces challenges in, in redesigning its social and tax policy, uh, as do many countries in the world. In the United States, we, we face that issue quite severely. But Mexico is, faces those challenges from a situation of fiscal soundness. There's no looming debt crisis in Mexico, it has, uh, which gives it a fair amount of room to take the time to, to, to be thoughtful and not do things that are under the fiscal gun that uh, Greece has recently faced, that Spain will face sh- shortly, as will Italy, as may France, and as will the United States sometime in this decade.
1: Very good. Let me thank our first panel, Professor Gordon Hansen and Santiago Levy. Thank Delicious. you very much for your insight. And we will take a 15-minute recess. Please be back here in 15 minutes.